WBNE. Hello from elsewhere. I'm Valerie. And I'm Casey. And this episode comes to you straight from Hollywood, but in a hopefully not too distant future. Because today we're discussing diverse representation in pop culture and why it matters. All right, Valerie, we don't have an all-important question because this is going to be a long episode. Should we just jump right in? No life anecdotes or anything? All I've, right, let's I've do it. No life anecdotes. <laughs> this is an important episode and I'm really excited to get to it. Yeah, we feel like, especially right now, but just in general, representation in pop culture is super, super important. It's a good discussion to have. There's so much out there on this topic. We're really just kind of scratching the surface. <laughs> Like you and I had to force ourselves to stop researching and just record. And just record already because otherwise this is going to be five hours long. Because you and I love to research more so than the talking part. And so we had to actually force ourselves to stop. And here we are. But yeah, like I said, just scratching the surface. And I'm still a little disappointed. There are some more things I feel like I want to research. Right. (laughs) I think that's a good point to make about this episode is this is not going to be exhaustive on the topic, but merely like a starting point, both for us, you and me, but also we hope you, our listener, can take this as a jumping off point. And everything we talk about, we've um, cataloged sort of the research we did and the links. So um, just if you look at the, the show description, there'll be a link to all of those resources that we used in our research for this episode. And there's a lot, but you can keep going as deep as you want on this. And we encourage you to do so because it, like we said, it's an important topic. We're talking about all kinds of diverse representations. So often when we think of that, we think of race, but there's so much more to it than just race. And race is important, but what else have we got? We've got ability and disability. We've got socioeconomic status. LGBTQ. Right. And we've got um, gender. And I'm sure we're missing some. So plus we have to think about age as well. Yeah. And it's, we also need to think about behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera. Right. Yeah. All kinds of things. And we're talk, trying to talk about books and movies here um, and TV. So let's do it. Let's jump in, Casey. Just in the interest of structure, how this episode will be outlined. Why are Kate, you smiling at me? Because Casey loves structure. <laughs> loves structure so much. <laughs> so I'm going to share that structure with our listeners. Um, so you at home can follow along, <laughs> have bullet pointed yeah, outlines no. like ours. I would be scared if you're taking notes. That That freaks me out. I'm not a professor. I'm not an expert on this topic. This is just sort of the the direction that we're interested in. But the first little bit of the episode, we're going to talk about the state of diversity in movies and books. So what diversity looks like now and in the past, especially the recent past. And then we'll talk about stories that don't have great representation and diversity. And then we're going to talk about why this topic even matters, why representation matters. And then we will move into stories that represent diverse experiences really well. And then we have some exciting stuff here at the end, the tail end of this episode. So stick around. Um, We're really excited to share some other voices that have contributed to this episode. So Yes. um, I can't wait. I've already listened to some of them. um, So good. And they're my favorite thing. And so I'm going to try not to talk too much because (laughs) they're so much better than anything I can say. So as I said, first section here, the state of diversity in movies and books. I wanted to start by talking about disability because too often disability is forgotten as a diversity category. Um, Absolutely. Which is really sad because disability is so intersectional. You know, you can be a member of any identity or group 
and also have a disability. And so it can really be an umbrella and so many people of all races, religions, classes, statuses, sexualities can have a disability. And so it's really important to have that represented well and appropriately. There's this wonderful report made by the the Ford Foundation called Roadmap for Inclusion, Changing the Face of Disability in the Media. It talks about disability in film and and TV. And there's a few quotes that I want to share here. The first one that says, quote, disabled people come in all shapes and sizes, from wheelchair riders to people with psychosocial disabilities, to those with chronic illnesses, from the Hispanic deaf person to the legally blind African-American who has albinism, to the Asian lesbian wheelchair rider. Diversity is intersectional and the media must reflect this. Not only do disabled people need to see themselves, but their families and communities need to see disability on their screens. Um, so that's kind of just what I was just saying, how intersectional disability can be. In this same report, it, it acknowledges that now compared to the past, there's been a real uptick and um, there's been more representation in in the media. But it says, however, one minority that is continually left on the margins of this new wave of representation is disabled people. It is no longer acceptable to not have women at the table. It is no longer acceptable to not have people of color at the table, but no one thinks to see if the table is accessible. And I like the way they, they phrase that. That um, is well written. We're, we're seeing so many more stories that are celebrating people of color and women. And obviously we still have a long way to go, but too often the people with disability are being left out of that conversation, um, that the table is still not accessible to them. I was going to say, I love that, but I don't love that it's not accessible. Right. Anyways, I love the wording is very pointed. The way that they, yes, yes. <laughs> I love the way that they have represented that. In terms of statistics, I'm going to throw a lot of statistics at you today. Is that okay, Valerie? Can I throw some numbers around? I love statistics. If I had like a whiteboard, I'd be crazily writing them, writing them. them down, and my hair askew. Your hair so, would be flopping as you. Yes, floppy hair, floppy-haired Casey. That's what they call me. Twenty-five uh, percent of Americans have a disability. That's a lot. So it is more than I people, would have guessed. Every four people, one, in one four of them people have a disability. Have a disability. Huh. But film and books don't represent that at all. Um, don't represent that ratio. And even when they happen to have characters of disability in the media, this the same report that I, I've started with here, they mention how unlikely it is that those characters will be played by actors with those disabilities that too often it's an actor without that disability that maybe doesn't fully understand it. Um, and they'll often even get praise and accolades for playing that character when that community wasn't fully represented in a way that they could be. And then on top of that, too often Hollywood, I think, portrays disabilities in sort of a stereotypical way. Like you think of mental illness, especially severe mental illness, when plenty of research and, and studies have shown that people with severe mental illness, like schizophrenia, um, they are very, very unlikely to commit violent crimes. And yet movies and books will often tell us that those are the people that are the, the super most villains. Dangerous, you know, yeah. those are the jokers and mm -hmm. that's not really the case. And and we'll get into a little bit later how that changes our perception, but it does. It changes our perceptions of people with especially people with mental illnesses that we think, oh, they're dangerous when when uh that's definitely not the case according to to the statistics. So and it just sends horrible, those horrible messages that, um, because there's the other stereotype of if a character has a disability, especially you see this a lot with physical disability, and, or maybe it happens um, later in life, like they get into some sort of accident and become a, a quadriplegic, that they'll often lose the will to live. And that just sends a really bad message that if you have a disability, then life's not worth living. 
And that's a really, that's just a really dangerous message, especially to young people with disabilities if they're, if they're hearing those messages or reading them or seeing them on screen. Right. It makes me think of how we just barely watched Remember the Titans recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, oh, what's his name? Gary. Gary. Mm-hmm. Yes. Gary gets in the car accident and he's in a wheelchair after that point and he goes, and you know, his one coach is like, well, we don't need to talk about football right now. And he's like, um, what does he say? My legs are broke, but I'm not dead. Like, he says, oh, yeah, I'm hurt. I ain't dead. <laughs> I'm hurt, but I ain't dead. Yeah. Like he still has so much to live for. Right. Yeah. He's not giving up by any means. You contrast that with like Million Dollar Baby where she gets paralyzed toward the end of the film and chooses to pull the plug because she doesn't think life is worth living, which... I haven't seen that, so I... Oh, you haven't seen Million Dollar Baby? Well, well spoilers. Now I just, you spoiled the end. I didn't, wasn't online to watch this. It's one of the that the first time I watched it, I liked it. The second time I was like, the, it didn't make any sense to me, her choice. Because mm. um, not only that is it sending that bad message, but it, her character is so like thriving and persevering and then get back up and and it and yeah, she it just, just gives up at it's the just, end. yeah it's not a good ending and um again sending those those poor messages but um i wanted to talk about i've also kind of structured this first section man people are gonna get so sick of me with my structure here <laughs> <laughs> i, I want to talk about publishing and um diversity and publishing and then we'll jump a little bit more into the into the film side of things from tck publishing they have this article about it's really focused on um, this very topic representation and diversity in in books and publishing uh, they said that in that only 10 percent of children's books included people of color in 2013 even though 37 percent of the united states and most of the rest of the world uh, wasn't white so it's just like the disability uh, issue where the amount of people in reality that have a disability aren't fully represented on screen and it's the same thing with most of these diverse categories um and here we see it with with um, children's books and people of color and on the same in the same token that uh, the same article mentions author melinda lowe who looked at the statistics of lgbtq representation and in uh let's see 2014 only 47 young adult books featured queer characters or themes however the good news is that's uh, a 59 percent increase from 2013 so there is always it's like we're making progress, even if it's slow progress. Progress is good, but slow, not so great. It's really interesting to me that, like you said, there are so many more people in the world of color than there are white. Yeah. So you can really tell who's in power. Right. If you're catering to this really small demographic. Yeah. But they're the ones that you work your whole, your books and your movies and everything around. So there's a wonderful institute you can look up on look them up online the perception institute and they do a lot of research on on this topic of representation in in pop culture and in media and how that affects people and they talk about that how how narrative is a power a currency of power how stories that we tell is a way of of showing the power and if if all of the creatives and the executives are uh, of the social majority then the social minority is going to get left out because they're going to perpetuate those those stories to stay in power. It's not always a conscious thing. It's a it's a systemic thing, but it's a sad truth of how stories are told. Exactly. I was reading a article and it was talking about UCLA did a study and it was yes, saying that in yeah. 2016 people of color made about 14% of film leads. Mm-hmm. Just 14%. Yeah. Like that's such a small amount of people of color who 
get cast as anything other than a sidekick or a side character or a side role or a unnamed person. Yeah. What year was that? 2016. Yeah, because I have the same, because the UCLA Hollywood Diversity Report, they do it every year. Okay. So it has increased. Oh, Because in 2019, it was 27.6%. Well, so we go. are seeing some progress. That's nice. Yeah, but that's still less than, you know, two to one. That's Because 2018 was a killer year for diversity, man. 2018? Yes. Why? Oh, that's what you're going to talk about later? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, just teasing? part of it is just that we... There were a lot of movies that came out in 2018 that had more diverse casts. Oh, cool. Real quick before we get to that, um, maybe not real quick. That... We won't get to that till much later, <laughs> <Okay>. so go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, um, so Lee and Lowe, they, did a, they do a diversity survey of publishing employees. So speaking of um, the people in power in this past year, so 2019, the publishing executives were 78% white. 98% of executives are cisgender. Cisgender meaning you identify with a gender that connects to the sex you were born with. 82% of them are straight and 90% are non-disabled. So they even looked at disability in those statistics. So those are all still really, really high numbers of the people that are choosing what books are published and um, the stories that are being told and the stories that are not being told. And uh, that's not good. <laughs> right. They, yeah. Like you said, they control the stories that we as a society hear. Yeah. One more thing about books before we talk about the state of diversity in movies a little bit more, but diversityinya.com, it's a, a great website. They analyzed the diversity in the top 100 list of um, challenged books or banned books and found that a disproportionate number of those are from diverse authors or include diverse characters or situations um, of the books that are challenged or banned. So, Well, that's fascinating. That's, yeah. That's crazy. It's like when you finally do get your book published. But it's going to get challenged. And then people are like, no, no, don't yeah. read that one. Yeah, exactly. They'll find a way. So kind of a sad, sad thing. This episode won't be all happy. That's okay, though. Not everything's happy all the time. Okay. Can I jump to movies? Let's talk about movies. So full disclosure to the reason I'm talking a lot right now is because this is like the section that I really looked hard into. And then Valerie's going to talk a lot more later. So I'm not trying to overstep the... No, Casey wanted to do all the heavy database research. And I was like, I want to look at the actual movies and books that are available and how they represent diversity and like specific examples of them. And we'll often do that. We'll research things sort of separately and then come and discuss what we find. And so... Because we like to research in different ways. Yeah, exactly. So Emily Vanderwerf, she's a writer at Vox, and she was talking about the Oscar nominees of this this, this past um, Oscar season 2020. And she just has this fantastic quote, so I'm going to read it. She says, The Oscars so white conversation has always been an attempt to push back against a larger systemic problem by pointing to one of its most obvious and glaring oversights. If you hear only one performer of color was nominated for an Oscar in 2020, and respond with, well, what other performers of color should have been nominated? As though that ends the discussion, you're highlighting the real problem. And no matter how many deserving performers of color I list out, they're still going to be the exception, not the rule, within the larger picture of all movies made in America. At the end of the day, the idea that the Oscar nominee slate isn't particularly diverse is absolutely a problem, but it pales in comparison to how non-diverse Hollywood is as a whole. So that's speaking to this whole idea of if the people up at the top people in power and even the people at the creative side of things 
um, behind the scenes are are not diverse, then of course we're not going to get those diverse stories told. And of course, she wrote this before the Oscar awards. So the the big success of the Oscars this year, the big the big um, I don't know, the, the big, big news, win. the big win was that Parasite won. Um, and you know, and that Korea Korean cinema was it was a little bit more in the spotlight, which is great. But again, we still have a long way to go. And I talked about the percentage of executives in publishing. Um, it's not any better, if not worse, in Hollywood. So Robin D'Angelo in White Fragility has some statistics on this. In 2016 and 17, 93 percent of TV executives are white, and 90 and 95 percent of the people who directed the top 100 films are white. So that's 95 out of those 100 films. And then to take that further, in that UCLA Hollywood Diversity Report that we mentioned, 5.5 um, percent of Hollywood films had black directors, and 5.6 had black writers. Still, 93 percent of it's the same as the TV. 93 percent of senior film executives were white. And j- jumping over to women as well, 44%, so it's a little bit better, of women are leads in sto- in films. Um, but, but still, in terms of film directors, it's only 15% and 17% for likelihood of being a writer. 15% as female directors. In other words, that's crazy. most of the female-led stories are still created by, by men, by men which I'm not saying that's always a bad thing. We can get great female characters from that. But there is something special and specific and valuable about creators creating from their own experience. And that that's going to be just very special. And that's what we want. Yeah. I mean, I was going to bring it up later, but we can mention it now. Little Women. Fantastic movie directed by... My mind just went blank, Casey. Greta Gerwig? Greta Gerwig, yeah. yes. And Who was not nominated for an Oscar. Not no no women Oscar. were this year. Yeah. That was a... That was sad. But yeah, it was a fantastic movie. It's and so good. Oh. The cast was just the most incredible female cast, and 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 like the costume director was female, and and it was just a very heavily female-led movie, which was fantastic. Well, and there's something to be said. I just remembered this, and I don't remember um, who reported this, but uh, with the Mandalorian TV show and what's uh, Cara Dune, her character. Yes. She talked about how much she loved having Deborah Chow to direct her because, oh no, or maybe it was Bryce Dallas Howard. It was one of the female directors um, that she just felt very like safe and she was allowed to like explore the character and to be feminine while also tough. And, and that it was very special to have a female behind the camera to sort of help her explore that. I just love that. Yes. That was on the making of, what do they call mm. the documentary? Yeah. The gallery. The gallery. Gallery, Mandalorian gallery. Mm-hmm. Yes. Those have been great. And I do love that they had both Deborah Chow as a director and Bryce Dallas Howard. Two more quick points we're going to make and then we're going to jump to Valerie. She's getting really tired of me. <laughs> she has so as much she to should, say. As she should. I'm sorry. I, I say. But this is all interesting. I should have so. put this one up front because it's something that's um, just really awesome. So. Gina Davis. So Gina Davis is in like a league of the a league of their own. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's got the red hair in that yeah. one. And so the, she's an she's Oscar the older winner. Sister. Yeah. She's um she started. She's the mom in Stuart Little. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> with how with Doctor House. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> she a few years ago, quite a while. I don't know how many years ago. She started the Gina Davis Institute, and they do a lot of research on on representation in in film specifically looking at um like children's and family movies and tv okay with 
the, you know, with the idea that if kids are seeing things, you know, the kids, kids are such an important, malleable part of society in terms of what they're learning. And so um, their research is specifically looking at not only representation in children and film, children, children's TV and film, but also directly giving that research to executives to help them change and to help the executives to include more representation, um, which is really awesome and really just fantastic. And it's working. They have plenty of studies on how their research has helped, but they especially look at gender disparities. So their most recent research shows that it's still three to one ratio of male to female characters, which they note is not great, especially considering children and teens from ages eight to 18 are looking at screens seven hours a day, seven hours. <laughs> that's so much. That's a lot. But that shows you. Say, let's not count how many hours our kids watch Casey. It's not seven hours. No, <laughs> but it's summertime. So they're also getting a little bit more. Um, no shame if it is seven hours. You're at the average. So that's the average. <laughs> yeah, that's average. <laughs> um, but if you're watching a screen for seven I hours. I mean, I guess you said that was the average, but in my mind, it's like. Right. It felt high. So then anyways. But if you're watching that much, then hopefully what you're watching is good and is showing a, a good representation of what life is like in terms of the type of people that exist. Because here's what we know. People will always be uncomfortable with things they don't understand or things that they haven't experienced themselves or things that you haven't seen. Um, so if you if your children yeah, don't see people of different diversity, then they're going to be more likely to be the one at the supermarket who's like, why is their skin so dark? And that'd be a nice way to put it. But right. like I was, this is kind of off topic, but I was reading somebody else's with all everything that's been in the media and I've been learning and listening more. Somebody was talking about growing up in here in Utah and in the elementary, like so many kids would ask him, you know, your skin looks like poop. Why does it look like poop? That just breaks my heart. But it's also because Utah is so heavily white. And the white parents don't feel like they need to talk to their kids about race. Right. Because they don't experience it. But you need to broaden your horizons and your outlook so that everybody feels included and taken care of instead of excluded and picked on. All right, Valerie, jump into your next section here. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. Here are a bunch of examples, Casey. Well, first of all, so I listened to a wonderful podcast by Black Girl Nerds. And um, it was actually, I just barely started listening to them, but there was one episode on race bending and whitewashing, which were two terms that I was like, well, I think I can tell what those are based off of, but I was like, but I don't think I've ever really learned about them. And so it was great. You guys should listen to the episode. So race bending is essentially where they um, have a character play, a character who was white played by somebody who was not white um and then whitewashing is the opposite where they take a character like if the story had a character that was asian but then it's played by a white person in the in the movie um, yeah. so that's whitewashing and so ever since i listened to that podcast episode i was like man whitewashing is extreme in Hollywood. And as I was looking it up, I was like, it's everywhere. Like, it was very eye-opening to see all of these characters who should have been played and should have been allowed to have this diverse, um, you know, a, a better diversity in the film, but instead were given to white, you know, leading men and women. So this goes way back forever. I mean, you go all the way back to 
like blackface. Yeah. It would be like a type of whitewashing. Or yellow face. Or yellow face. Yes. Um, and then I was also interested in, so West Side Story, like Natalie Wood, uh, who plays uh, Maria, she's, she's white. She's like Russian-American. But then you have Anita in the story, who actually is of Puerto Rican descent a descent, but she wasn't brown enough for the film, so they made her do brown no. face to make her look more Puerto Rican. Oh, jeez. Which is just so sad. Because it's like, I guess they were trying to show, look at us, we've got this diverse cast, but obviously diversity comes in many different shades. Um, some other ones, if we want to come more recent era, in Doctor Strange, you have Tilda Swinton, mm -hmm. who plays the Ancient One, who is in the comic books is an old Asian man. So in that case, you're like, well, it's kind of cool that they made a female instead of another male role. Cause otherwise that movie would have like Just one- like Rachel McAdams, yeah. <laughs> one female in it, right. <laughs> in the whole thing. <laughs> so I could see them wanting to diversify that way a little bit, um, but why not find an Asian female to play the role? Um, so that one got a lot of pushback. And in fact, in fact, it's very common in all anime or Japanese-based stories that they often get played by white characters, uh, by white actors. For example, the Avatar movie was like an all-white yeah, cast. Yeah, The Last Airbender. The Last yeah. Airbender Avatar, yes. I was thinking of Avatar. Oh, not the other Avatar. That has its own yes. <laughs> white savior problems, so that's why it was on my mind, but yeah. Yes. Well, and even, even like Western comics do it too like um Raz al Ghul it was a, a bait and switch that the Asian man wasn't the real Raz al Ghul it was Liam Neeson and yes um you know even you know all these stories that we love like um Bane is traditionally traditionally in the comics a Latino Latino man um, interesting I didn't know that I don't think they ever say what country specifically but they he is from South American of South American descent at least from one of his parents um, but then he's played by Tom Hardy and yeah, even, I don't know, anyways. Go ahead, if you had something else to say. Well, and I was just going to say, on that same track of stories I love, but they do have problematic aspects, like uh, I was thinking about Kubo and the Two Strings, which is one of my favorite movies ever, but it is a very Japanese-inspired story, but it is directed by a white man, and almost all of the, the voice actors are white. That's one of the things that bothers me about that movie, as much as I love it, is it really should have had Japanese... Yeah. actors yeah they went with big name actors instead which i don't like that animated movies feel the need to do that in general but especially when um culturally it really should be someone that has that background we were talking about this as we were discussing ideas for the movie because kubo is an interesting one because like you said it, it is a story written and directed by white men mm -hmm. and it would be so interesting to see the story from an actual, you know, Asian perspective yeah. and how that would have changed it. And it also feels a little bit like cultural appropriation almost where you're like, oh, I really love this about their culture. So I'm going to write my own story about it, which is kind of a fine line because it's like well, you're appreciating it and you right. want to explore it and you made a fantastic movie that everybody and you gets to behind see. behind the scenes and it's clear that they've, everyone involved has done their homework like yes it's not so much research so, like people have been respectful about it but what kind of story would it have been if there were more japanese or um asian people involved hopefully we'll continue to find out and it's not an easy topic and people have people have strong feelings about that and if you're listening and you're having 
a strong reaction, that's okay. Um, but yeah, this is just our our perspective on it. But right, because yeah, I'm not saying that it was bad that he made Kubo, but just right. interesting to think about it in the sense that he, if he's telling a Japanese inspired story, what would it have been like from a Japanese actual Japanese perspective? Right, exactly. Yeah. Some other ones we can bring up. Prince of Persia, Jake Gyllenhaal is not Persian. Not Persian, yeah. As much as I love that He's man. He's not Middle Eastern. He is not Middle Eastern. <laughs> Neither is uh, Gemma, Gemma Arterton. Is that how you say your name? Mm. Anyways, she's plays the Persian princess yeah. and she's clearly white as well. It just seems like such a waste. There are millions of excited actors out there who would right. love a chance to play a role that looks like them and instead they just keep casting the same white people over and over again. It's because of money talks and yeah that you know big names get people in seats but actually um research has shown that that people of diversity have actually a lot of buying power and make up a big percentage of um of film sales and and stats have shown that the more diverse that a film is the better it will do probably because of the international market because the international market is way bigger than the united states market by itself so absolutely as much as we think we're pretty awesome over here in the United States, we are a tiny portion of the world. Executives, I would hope, aren't pushing representation just for money and business reasons, although that is... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, because they, sure they, they are a business, yeah, and they have to make money, otherwise right. they go out of business. But but I think there are ulterior motives involved, but yes. if there are ulterior motives involved, they should at least be looking at the fact that if they make their their cast more diverse, they're going to make more money. I wish that wasn't the reason they would do it, but it would help them. So It'd be a starting point, at least. Yeah. Uh, the Lone Ranger has mm. Johnny Depp as Tonto. Yeah. Eh. Yeah, that one's, that one's pretty eh. bad. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I'm sure there are plenty of willing Native American actors out there who would have loved... Well, I mean, maybe they don't want to play Tonto. <laughs> It's not, right. not a very flattering well, role in general. So many Native American roles are stereotyped. Yes. Probably more than, I mean, I don't have any stats, but if I'm just going off the top of my head, I can't think of a, of a group of people that is more stereotyped in film and books and everything than Native Americans. Um, you know, grouped as a monolith, first of all, that they don't have different tribes and just pure stereotype and that their whole role is to be the native american character they don't get to just be a character a character yeah. that happens to be native american mm-hmm. you know? i do love i'd have to rewatch it because it's been a long time and i just thought of it um i do love oh, what's his name in the movie the western movie with mel gibson maverick maverick and there's and maverick's character is very friendly with a, a chief mm-hmm. and it's played by Oh, what's his name? Because he was like, this is, he was probably like the only Native American I remember seeing in films growing up. And he was in, you know, two or three that I, Multiple. that I could remember. But one of the things that I liked in Maverick is that he says some of those same things. Like there's, not with Maverick, but there's another like Russian guy who's out touring the West, the Wild West. And so um, they keep upping prices on this, on this Russian guy and like pretending to be all Indian. And mm-hmm. he like pulls different voices and he's like, this is a bunch of crap, you know, like he's yeah. aside to Maverick. He's like, nobody actually does, this. you know, right. he's, um, but he puts on this show to, to make a fool of the, of the Russian guy. But at the same time. Um, it's isn't it still playing into that stereotype exactly oh i'm sure it is like i said it's been a long time since i've watched it uh graham green is his name yeah i'm sure i'm sure it's problematic it's been a long time since i've seen it but again 
Graham Greene is the only Native American actor I could think of. And I mean, I didn't even know his name, but like the only one I can picture in my mind that I saw all of growing up. But they make up a substantial population here in the United States. Like there could be more of them. I know the sad truth is that we think that we're done with blackface and yellowface. And but the 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 insidious thing about racism, especially in the media, is that it shifts and it, you know, it's slippery and it changes. And so. Yeah, we don't have those things, but we do still have, we definitely still have whitewashing. And um, I think it's a detriment to the kinds of stories we could be be watching and reading. How much more interesting would the movie 21, do you remember 21, where they, there's like the card counting? The card counting. I never saw it. Never saw it. So there's Mm -hmm. like a group of six students from MIT. Right. um, Who are like trained by one of their professors to be card counters and then go to Vegas to like, Mm -hmm. um, to pull one over on the house. So the book, it's based on a book called Bringing Down the House, which is about a real-life team. So it's based off of true events. And they changed all the people. Yeah. Out of the six students, five of them are of Asian descent. And there's like, I think, one in the cast that is a person of color. And I'm not even, I think he is Asian descent. But anyways, yeah, Jim Sturgis plays the main guy. Mm-hmm. But they were all asian americans like oh man <laughs> it could have been That's a even great worse when it's a real story <laughs> to represent all of these real life people right uh and instead they just whitewashed the entire yeah, cast like it's one thing if it's a made-up story but when you're basing it on a real life story mm-hmm. there's really no excuse exactly i have one last example casey aloha which i haven't seen but it's got emma stone who is supposed to be playing a character of Chinese Hawaiian heritage. What? Look at picture Emma Stone in your mind. Hmm, mm-hmm. red hair, light face, freckles. Super freckly, yeah. And you think Chinese Hawaiian. Yeah, okay. Nope. <laughs> what? I don't see that at all. Oh, man. <laughs> like is that one based on a true story or is it I like don't know a, if that one's based on a true, an true story. Of some kind. I think it's a it was a I think it was a book with a Chinese um, Hawaiian character and then yeah they just changed that for the movie so why why does any of this matter that's yeah. the big question we've talked about what's the big deal if Hollywood can make all this money with all these white people starring why change and if we it love up? these movies why does it matter and why you know I, I can hear the argument of why do we need to just force diversity you know why does any of this why do that why can't we just let let people make what they want to make and um why can't we have white directors and white actors? Which is not what we're saying, but I can hear that argument. And so... I think some are often, people think diversity means less. Well, I mean, it means that it'll overtake what we currently have. Like, I doubt our society is ever going to get to a point where 90% of the executives <laughs> in Hollywood are people of color. But that's the thing about power is if you're in power, you're afraid of losing it. And so you're going to do whatever you can to not lose it. And that includes us in the audience with buying power. And if we want to see, you know, this is coming from me, a a white man, I've been very represented on screen and in books a lot. And so I I can understand why people like me would, you know, go against that. Like, no, I want to keep seeing people like me on screen. I don't feel that way because I think it's boring. I'm bored of that. But, but I can see why people would think that because like I said, if you're, if you're in that place of privilege and power, the natural thing is to be afraid of, of losing it. And so you're going to fight against that change. 
that added diversity. It is such a state of privilege that we expect everybody else to watch these movies and be able to enjoy them and and find some likeness to the main characters who don't look like them. Why can't we watch movies with... uh, We as white people. We as white people watch movies with people of color as the leads and find those same kind of similarities. Oh, look, I'm funny like her. Or, oh, look, I have a similar relationship with my parents that they do. Like, they don't have to look exactly like us for us to be able to enjoy the films and to find common ground. Right, exactly. The only trouble is that um, us, as people in that privilege, we've had a lot of those stories, and so it's just, it's not right that other people haven't had that chance. Exactly, that's Um, our privilege. Yeah, Um, and of course, again, this isn't just about race. There are other things, like Valerie, you being a woman, might not... (laughs) You're smart. I don't know. (laughs) Have I never called you that before? (laughs) Girl, you'll be a woman soon. (laughs) <laughs> do you know that song <laughs> no is it okay. elvis no is it abba it's, it's um what's his name that sings that song about america i don't know bruce springsteen no anyways no i can't think of his name if it comes to you okay <laughs> all i'm saying is that um i don't i don't even know what i was what train of thought i was going on but i've got some good some good info here about why representation is important yeah because it is to me, it is to you, but... And here's a disclaimer, we're not perfect at this. No. Like, if you look at our shelf of movies... No, we definitely need to work... You and I we've have talked had this about conversation. This. There's, yeah. like, a majority of, you know, people who look like us. Yes. And we, made... Movies made by made people by that people are who look like, like us. us. Yeah. I know, we were talking about how we should do a challenge, like, have to dissect our each of our, like, top five favorite movies. Right. And see if they actually have... You know, what kind of diversity do they actually represent? Yeah. Maybe we should do that in our bonus, next bonus episode. Ooh, that'd be a fun one. Should we do that? Yeah, okay. I like the idea. Then you guys can play along. Start thinking of your top five favorite movies and are they di- are they diverse or not? Right. So Juno Diaz, who is a wonderful writer, he says, if you want to make a human being into a monster, deny them at the cultural level any reflection of themselves. Mm. I thought that was a good way to start this little section about why representation matters, because everyone deserves the right to have a reflection of themselves um, in in entertainment, in culture, in pop culture, and you know that includes books and movies. And then Walter Dean Myers, who is a a black writer, he says books transmit values; they explore our common humanity. What is the message when some children are not represented in those books? Where are the future white personnel managers going to get their ideas of people of color? Where are the future white loan officers and future white politicians going to get their knowledge of people of color? Where are black children going to get a sense of who they are and what they can be? I like this quote because it speaks to the fact that um, more diverse stories are important because it helps everyone. And I don't want to center the people like me that have had the privilege, but it does benefit white men to see people like them, not like them on screen or read about people not like them in a book because it improves empathy. And we talked about this a lot in our Power of Story episode about how narratives have shown scientifically to increase people's empathy. And if that is true, which science has has said it is, then there's going to be a benefit for everybody to see people who are like them and who are not like them on screen. And that's awesome. I think it's powerful. Definitely powerful. Along those same lines, I was just thinking about how everyone should get to see themselves as a hero. Like, it's so empowering to see somebody who 
looks like you overcoming struggles and overcoming pain and overcoming challenges to rise up and save themselves or save the world or whatever it may be. I mean, that's why I love Captain Marvel so much. Yeah. Like she is an awesome example of female empowerment. And I think everybody should get to see a character that looks like themselves in the movie and just be like, yes, thank you. Right. I can do that too. I love that. That makes me so happy. It makes me happy when when people see themselves represented and also I just love passionate people and so to get to to get to see people passionate about that that just that makes me so happy. Uh, a professor Doreen Kondo, uh, she has a book called World Making, but she said in an in an interview, pop culture is more than just forms of entertainment. They, uh, she says they stage visions of possibility for what and who we can become. Because marginalized populations have fewer role models in the workplace and society in general, we need more expansive and generous visions of possibility that tell stories of people from different races, genders, sexualities, classes, abilities, cultures. I like that that little quote because it, it speaks to the idea that, uh, like what you're just saying, they need those visions of people um, in, in heroic roles, but also in everyday roles, too that aren't a stereotype. That's what I was going to say. The problem is that normally when we do get a character that's diverse in some way, they're stereotyped. Right. Well, and I in the research, I felt like the most common thing that I saw or read from creators especially, um, whether they were women creators or um, people of color or both, they talked about how they want to be able to create stories, the stories that they want to. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, if they're a person of color, that that story is going to be about racism or slavery. Um, if they're a black person or if they're women, it's not necessarily going to be about sexism. It might just be about a person living a normal life that happens to belong to that group. And that will be like, that's, that's exciting to me too. When we get to that point where we get just everyday stories um, that aren't stereotypes Yes. And aren't they like holding should... people to a pedis- on a pedestal or something. Exactly. Other other races, other, you know, people of different abilities, um, they should be able to be given a story that is just as just as nuanced as a white person's story. Yeah. You know, a white person's story is almost never about their race. Um, so it's just about everyday life and daily challenges that you have and and so it's really interesting to be able to get their stories just as as developed and not stereotyped right because no one wants to be defined by one thing one thing no one wants to be defined just by their race or just by their gender or their ability or their disability or whatever um people are well-rounded and that's why my favorite stories with diverse characters are ones in which those characters are allowed to be well-rounded and to have those intersection that intersection of identity like this this quote from there's a writer of uh, the Dirt, dirty girls social club her name's elisa valdez rodriguez and she says thing is though no one wakes up in the morning feeling like the other we all just wake up feeling like people that's the story i want to tell she has this amazing um, amazing article about things that tv executives need to stop telling um like white executives specifically need to stop telling people of diverse backgrounds because she and others have said like They've heard from so many executives like, well, your story's not whatever enough, like not not Mexican enough or it's too Mexican, like policing their culture. It's like telling, oh, I already blanked on her name, the lady who played Anita, that her face is not brown enough. Yeah, Yeah. that was what I thought of when you said that was how many of these authors and writers and creators have said that, that 
they want to tell the stories that they want to tell and so many higher up people are telling them that they're too much this or not enough this which is really sad that we aren't trusting people to tell their stories one of my favorite examples of of representation and and seeing it at work and how positive of an influence it is is Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek back in the day. When was this been? 70s? 60s. 60s. Um, She had a tremendous impact on a lot of young black women or young black girls who saw her. Um, For example, Whoopi Goldberg um, has said in some interviews about the first time that she saw Uhura on television. And so she said... Well, when I was nine years old, Star Trek came on, and I looked at it, and I went screaming through the house, Come here, Mom, everybody, come quick, come quick, there's a black lady on television, and she ain't no maid. And she says, I knew right then and there that I could be anything I wanted to be. Like, for the longest time, the black woman that she saw, like she said, was a maid, or a servant, or maybe a slave, or, you know, the tiniest side character. But to see her in a position of power... Yeah on the bridge in a position of of leadership and she's saying look i can do more than what i've seen portrayed of people who look like me up to this point that's what i love about the original star trek was it was a very diverse cast too Mm because there was um, sulu as well and um you had all these this just diverse array of characters and because star trek was about the future and it was about a hopeful future it didn't treat it like well, let me reword that. It treated it as as normal and typical. This was the typical spaceship of the future and that it yes. had this diverse cast, especially in the 60s when that would have been borderline Huge. scandalous to yeah. have that. Um, and it was like when when she and Kirk, Captain Kirk kissed at one point, it was scandalous. And mm-hmm. um, They were the first interracial kiss on television. Oh, yeah. But I just love how it was normalized in that show. It was treated as normal and typical um, because that's really important. Like I haven't seen the show, but Will and Grace, and there's this thing called the Will and Grace effect. You know, that show really went a long way to normalizing gay people on, um, for a lot of the United States and probably outside the United States as well. And I I think it had that same effect of, of, um, well, so there was an actor, Wilson Cruz. He put it better. He said, seeing people on screen can change people's opinions a lot of the ignorance comes from a lack of exposure, which is like what you just said earlier, that if we're exposed to to people of different identities, whatever they might be, that it becomes normalized in our minds. And that's really powerful and really important. Super important. Popular cultures really um, can have a huge impact on stereotypes, whether perpetuating them or breaking them down or making them less less salient. So there's a great, I, I mentioned it before, so the Perception Institute, they do a lot of studies on this and they have an awesome review of the research literature. And I put it at the very top of the link in the show description because it's really valuable and it's a great overview of this whole topic and they'll cover it in a way that we never could. And in that review, they show that there's support for popular culture's ability to, they, they call it a, be a powerful agent for change generally, and that it can improve public opinion and behavior towards stigmatized groups. So there's studies that have shown that pop culture can be that powerful structure and institution and um, vessel for changing people's minds at the same time that it can also be, can negatively impact people. Like they've shown that, um, for example, there was a research by Tony Schmader, Katharina Block, and Brian Lickle, and they said that 
Mexican-Americans experience negative emotional reactions, including shame, guilt, anger, and less positive, positive affect after watching stereotypic portrayals of their in-group. And, and yeah, they were just looking at Mexican-Americans, but I think it's probably safe to say that most people would experience that when they see um, stereotyped, stereotypic um, representations of their group. And then in, the, in an issue of Media Psychology in 2019, it says... Muslim American students who viewed negative media representations of their religious in-group were less likely to desire acceptance by other Americans and more likely to avoid interactions with majority members. So, in other words, stereotypes in movies and books negatively affect people and also sort of break us apart. They're going to divide us. They're not going to, it's not going to unite us in any way. Definitely Quite the not. opposite. Yeah. So. Well, Casey, should we talk about some good examples of diversity and yes can i say one more thing okay it's really cool it's the one that i told you about before <laughs> but i told you i couldn't tell you about it because it's really interesting okay um because valerie and i started talking about this before and we're like oh we better stop talking because gotta we need save, to save it, it for the podcast <laughs> save it for the pod. um in 2018 there was a quartz article and it talked about how there was this a, multiple bilingual authors that were really pushing um for publishing to stop italicizing um in their books to stop italicizing anytime they went into, you know, in dialogue, went to their language. You know, when you're reading in English and then they'll italicize a non-English word or phrase yes. to like set it apart. Mm -hmm. um, and this article says, I love this, it says, the format is meant to be used for clarity to indicate to a reader that she hasn't come across a typo or an English word she doesn't know. But the practice reinforces a monolinguistic culture of othering, some writers believe, and it simply doesn't sound natural. For the world's bilingual population, by some estimates more than half, it's not the way people really talk. And the article um, talks about how, yeah, that when you're reading and the, you see the italics, it just jumps out. And it when people are bilingual, they don't talk like that. They don't... Um, don't right, know. they switch back and forth seamlessly. Yes. They it, from word to word even let alone yeah. sentence or anything else yeah i just love this idea of how something seemingly so small like grammar and punctuation and um and word usage can have such a huge impact on how we view things and how and yeah it is othering to to read it that way and um, we should be willing to do the work if we come across a word or phrase that we don't know we can look it up <laughs> look it up don't assume it's a typo anyways I just thought that was really interesting. Oh, it's very interesting. I mean, you and I both have English degrees, so we love the minutia words and the minutiae of grammar, of grammar. Yeah. <laughs> and editing the idea yes. that you italicize or not italicize right. something and the effects that that has. Yeah, because when I fascinating when I was an editor, that was I mean that was in our style guide. You mm -hmm. italicize foreign, you know, non-English words, but but it's not really that necessary to do so. Yeah. Okay, let's talk now about some positive. Ready? examples okay some progress has been made in years of late like i said i thought i think 2018 was an especially good year for let's this. hear about 2018 i'm really interested in this okay you want to hear 2018 we got well i was specifically thinking we had black panther mm -hmm. we had uh crazy rich asians i love that movie. we had to all the boys i loved before love that movie we too. had i also love black panther I didn't uh, say we that. had dumpling love that movie i know i'm just telling you 2018 was a really good year for diversity so let's talk about some of these um you were talking about having movies that rep represent different kinds of uh, or people of different abilities um so i was thinking about the theory of everything because that's a stephen hawking story and his is definitely 
interesting, especially because he becomes a person with different abilities, like he uh, or loses abilities. I don't know how you best say that, but yeah, well, he it's like he has he has that lifelong physical disability and disease, but it doesn't it didn't manifest till later in life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, we recently watched Peanut Butter Falcon. Speaking of diversity, they had a fantastic. Oh, now I can't remember. I should have looked up his name. A fantastic young gentleman, and he he has Down syndrome, and he did an absolutely wonderful job in that movie. He's so good in it. He's <laughs> so funny, and he's got, like, the best comedic timing. Really and good. And he's just so sweet, and, and it's incredible to show other people who have Down syndrome, like, like he can act. Yeah. Or he can lead a normal life or he can, you know. Well, in the story of how that movie came about, remember how the, the yes. directors were, had met him at. At a camp. That's what it was. It was like an mm-hmm. acting camp or something like that or a filmmaking camp or something. something. And he had said like, why aren't there more? He had straight up asked them, why aren't there more roles for people with Down syndrome? Yes. And then they decided, well, we're going to make one. <laughs> yeah. They're like, well, why can't we make one? Yeah. And so they tested him they did some screenshots with or what do you call it screen, screen tests screen yeah. tests um, of some of the roles with him to be able to show you know producers and things that this could work that he could really do this yeah and he does it it's a great movie he really does it and i feel bad we should look up his name because i'm just really bad with names and while you're looking it up whether representation is good or bad is hard too because there is always some subjectivity to it and this is coming from just our perspectives because there are plenty of times where um, people within the group that's being represented are not always going to agree like oh this is a perfect representation of of our ability level or our of, of poverty or of our race or whatever it is um yes. people don't always agree and there's always going to be some subjectivity to it we can talk about that in one second his name is zach Gotsagin. Gotsagin. Um, but like you were saying, that came up with Crazy Rich Asians because it's the first movie in 25 years to have an all-Asian cast. Before that, uh, The Joy Luck Club came out in 1993. But so this movie has had like 25 years of pressure uh, built around it. And it's here to illustrate, you know, especially by the title, Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, so you're saying that you're going to illustrate the point of... or illustrate all different kinds of Asians um, but it doesn't <laughs> but it can't right. obviously and it's set in Singapore and it's set in a very elite society mm-hmm. um, so it, it got a little bit of flack for that but for the most part everybody just loves the movie and it had such a fantastic impact um, the author of the book and I didn't write down his name um, but he had early perspective producers who wanted to make the movie, but they wanted to cast the leading lady as, as, you know, a white actress. And so he said no, and he had to, like, wait. And then the um, director, once they were kind of getting everything together, they got an offer from Netflix. Um, It was a bigger offer with more money, but they specifically wanted to make sure that this film got put on the big screen. Mm. because it would make it further because more people would see it yeah. and it would have a greater impact. They really wanted it to be able to be seen by as many people as possible. So they took less money. So they took less money to make the movie. To make the movie to get it to a wider audience. At least. Yeah. Yeah. And Constance, Constance Wu who plays the main woman, I can't remember I her don't name. Remember, yeah. We need to watch it again. It's been a while, but it's, it's really good. good. <laughs> <laughs> um she had read the novel and loved it. 
uh, but she didn't really ever see herself as a leading lady because she had never seen leading ladies like herself. Like she didn't like as much as she she said in some interviews that acting wasn't even really a choice for her. It was just a something she had to do. That was just who she was. But she never really pictured herself as getting any of the lead roles because when does that ever happen? Um, and now Crazy Rich Asians is the highest grossing romantic comedy in the last decade. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. So like we were talking about how money speaks in Hollywood when they can get successful movies like Crazy Rich Asians that has an entirely Asian cast and it does well when we as an audience go to see it and, you know, and support it and it does really well, then hopefully that opens the door to get other movies like it and get even more stories, get more of that Asian diversity that people wanted from the movie. But like one movie can't give you that. Right. That'd be like saying in in our all of the movies with white roles. I mean, we have millions of movies to play all the different characters that we want to see represented by us. We can find one because millions have been made. But if you've only had 10 movies made with people who look like you then you're not going to find yourself exactly. You know, like it's a lot harder. Yeah. I wanted to mention Dumplin' because it's a Netflix movie and it's really great. And it has size diversity, which is something we don't see a lot. We don't get a lot of leading ladies who are plus size, who, you know, aren't the so-called ideal size two super, um, you know, skinny characters. Yeah. Um, And that one's... So great. And it also has a trans community Mm -hmm. that's involved in the story. And they're just the best people. Like it opens your eyes to like, oh, well, there are so many derogatory things that have been said about trans people that you start to imagine the worst of them. And so when you start to see representation like that, you're like, oh, look, they can be kind. They can be good. They can can be human. They can be human. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, So that one's really great. Yes. At the same time, it's also, I feel like size diversity is tricky because so often the story becomes about their size. And Dumplin' is a bit. Dumplin' is. It's like a really good movie, but I'm excited for the day when we just have more body diversity in movies that is just one aspect of their character. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Casey. I've been listening to the Brooklyn Nine-Nine behind the scenes podcast Mm -hmm. and it's so good. But one of the things that they mentioned... Um, in one of the episodes is that the characters, the actresses who play Diaz and Amy Mm -hmm. Santiago, those two actresses mentioned that they were both there um, reading for parts and they thought for sure, they're like, well, they're not going to cast two Latina women in the same show. Like it just doesn't happen. So it was kind of like a, well, one of us will get it and one of us won't. And then they, and then when they did both get cast, they were so surprised that when they went to shoot the pilot, they had decided that Rosa was going to keep her hair more natural and very curly. And um, Amy would have her hair straight, even though the actress has naturally curly hair as well. Mm. And that she would keep her hair straight to differentiate the characters, to make them so that they, bo- so that they don't both look too uh, Latina. Mm-hmm. Because... They worried, you know, some exec would be like, well, you don't need both of them. Right. And kick one of them off the show. Hmm. And so that idea of... That's so sad that they had... I know. They had to, like, think of these things because they had been, you know, to so many other cast calls and they're looking for, you know, the cast call says, you know, looking for one Latina woman. And you're like, well, there's two dozen of us here, you know. Only one person gets the role because there aren't that many diverse roles. And we can't talk about diversity without bringing up Black Panther, Casey. 
Oh, yeah. It's just such an amazingly inclusive black movie. Yeah. From the director, uh, Ryan Coogler, to obviously all the actors who played the roles. Mm-hmm. I think the only white role is... Um, Martin Freeman. What's his name? Yes. No, because you got Andy Circus. Watson. As well. Oh, Andy Circus. Okay. And so, probably some of his henchmen. And I'm sure there's some, yeah, some henchmen, background some background people. people. But, yeah. but an almost entirely black cast, which is fantastic. And then you, uh, but then behind the scenes, like I said, the director, and then you have uh, Camille Friend, who was like, uh, she was in charge of everybody's like hairstyles. And then you have Ruth Carter, who headed the costume design, and they yeah. took a lot of African influence um, for all of the costume and the hair was all very natural to um to really promote that pride in in their black cultures and 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 african heritage when i was doing research about about oh no it was on black girl nerds when they were talking about whitewashing they brought up amandla stenberg who was in the running to play shuri Mm. and she played rue on hunger games and Amanda Stenberg, she's biracial, um, so her skin color is lighter than a lot of the other characters in the movie. And so she, as she got further into the audition process, she decided to opt out because she believed that a black woman with darker skin would better represent Shuri. Um, her quote says, That was not a space that I should have taken up, Stenberg said, and it was so exhilarating to see it fulfilled by people who should have been a part of it and who deserved it and who were right for it. I just wasn't. Like, if more white actors could take that approach and be like, well, I'm glad that's kind of you to offer, but also you should get somebody my role. who looks like this part... But again, it comes down to that that giving up of power. Like, I think in some cases, I mean, actors, they have to work to eat. But there are plenty of times where big name actors are given roles and you're like, you know, you don't need this act. You don't you don't need this role to eat like you're not starving. Right. (laughs) You've done really well. You can pass this one up and let it go to somebody who actually fits this diversity. Um, And it just creates like such a powerful image of of black pride and black joy for so many people to see and like you were saying it's not a story about racism you know it was most black movies that you see or movies with black characters you see are like movies about uh you know enslaved people or movies about the civil rights movement yeah Uh, that's something to do with their race and Wakanda is just a beautiful place with beautiful people and they have such a fantastic heritage. Um, did you, there's also a, if you ever want to fall down a hole on the internet. I always want to fall down holes on the internet. Yes. Then you can uh, look up the hashtag, what Black Panther means to me. And there are some incredible stories that are just of people feeling so seen and so heard. And it's fantastic. Up next on my list, Casey, Miss Marvel. Uh, Kamala Khan is a Pakistani-American Muslim, so she's a Muslim teenage girl, and the Miss Marvel comic started in 2013. And like you were saying about uh, students who, you know, see other Muslim people represented negatively in the media, that's a huge one. Yeah, here in the United States. Yeah, and so for like in Hollywood, the concept of a of a Muslim character saving the day, let alone being the superhero, is like unheard of. They're usually the villain. They're usually the bad guy. They're usually all the people in like Raiders of the Lost Ark that are trying to stop uh, indie. <laughs> but so what's wonderful is that in Kamala's family, we see a variety of Muslims portrayed. 
Like, her older brother is more conservative, but her dad wants Kamala to become a doctor. Um, Kamala's best friend, Nakia, she wears a hijab, but Kamala does not. Like, there's just all these different nuances to these Muslim characters. Like, they're not all super strict or um, they just have different lives, different um, things. And it's really exciting that uh, Disney Plus, like a live action series is in the works, Casey. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mindy Kaling is supposed to like be writing it, right? I don't I know. I believe so. I was looking up things, but I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah, I believe Mindy Kaling is supposed to be writing that it. That would be I fantastic. I forgot about that. Yeah. And then there's potential for her to be, for Kamala Khan's character to be in, in future Avengers movies. Because, I mean, she's named Miss Marvel because... Uh, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, is like her favorite person, her like her role model. And in fact, she and uh, Miss Marvel and, and Captain Marvel work together sometimes. Um, and so she's kind of a, a mentor to Kamala. Well, then Squirrel Girl's got to show up in that live action. Absolutely. Right. Because in some of the stories, comics and, and in the, uh, what's it called, Marvel Uprising, there's like some, they're all on Disney Plus, you can watch them. But Kamala and Doreen Green, Squirrel Girl, they're like best buds. <laughs> Squirrel Girl's another one that does representation really well. I mean, we've got the female lead character who is also generally drawn plus, plus sized, mm-hmm. but also even in... Especially since she has to fit her tail into right. her pants. <laughs> so that's going to make you look extra curvy. Um, and in um, the book, her best friend is hearing impaired as yes. well. And it's never... Sophia? Yeah. And it's always just, um, again, with especially with disability, it's really important that to a lot of people with disabilities that they're just shown as typical people living their lives that happen to have this disability and it's not a necessarily defining feature like with Sophia she's really great with computers and mm-hmm. she has a huge crush on Thor and loves socks and <laughs> like she has so much more to her character yes. not to mention being Latina as well so mm-hmm. can we talk about Rogue One is it on sure. your list? it's not Casey I've just been really happy with in terms of Star representation Wars Star Wars I think has done really well um and yeah, you've got Ray, and Ray's awesome. And I love Ray um, in The Force Awakens. But there's so many little things in The Force Awakens that I think we've already forgotten how big they were, like showing um, more female pilots. And there's even the voice of yes. female stormtroopers. And Captain Phasma is a female. So you know, you've got females, you've got women. Um, yeah, go listen to the women, women in Star Wars podcast that we episode that we did yes. last month. Exactly, which is great. And then Finn is a black man, and... But Rogue One specifically, I thought was really awesome because, um, yeah, you've got Jin, but you've also got you've got Chirrut, who's played by Donnie Yen, who is a pretty big Chinese actor, um, who also is blind too. And then you've got um, I was thinking in real life in no, the movie. Yes, in the movie, <laughs> Chirrut, Chirrut is, is blind, blind yeah. not Donnie Yen. Um, but again, I mean, going back to that, that's another thing where could they have found a blind actor? Mm, you know, yeah, it, it's we take it. It seems so commonplace to have right. um, able-bodied actors playing because characters play with a disability something. that they don't have. Mm-hmm. You're an actor; it's what you do. You play the part. Yeah, and it's a sticky, it's a sticky thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, and you've got Baze Malbus, and um, you've got Riz Ahmed who plays Bodhi. Yes, he's a British Pakistani descent. Um, you've got Forrest Whitaker in the movie, and then the big one. Haven't mentioned your favorite. It's not a big one, but like big one to me, big in my heart is. <laughs> is uh diego luna Mm -hmm. who is a mexican man and he's playing he plays um cassian and he made that specific choice to keep his 
accent for the movie. And there's this really, really cool story. It kind of went viral after the movie of a woman named uh, Perla Nation and her her dad. She took her dad to the movie because she knew that Diego Luna kept his accent. And he wasn't a Star Wars fan or anything. But he was like just so in awe and amazed that he was this um, main character. You know, he's like the he and Jin are the main characters in the movie. And here he is keeping his Mexican accent. And it was was just really empowering for him and for their family. And then that extended to so many people, not just in Mexico, but a lot of Latinx people that were just so happy to see that main, main character who kept that accent. And it was just, I just love that. That makes me so happy that it makes me happy when Star Wars makes people happy. (laughs) It makes me happy when any story makes people happy. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I think, I think Star Wars has done pretty well for the most part in that i mean there's always steps that can be made um i'd really love but they're moving in the right step yeah and you guys talked about this in the women of star wars episode so i won't belabor it but i i do agree that it'd be great to have more uh women of color especially and lgbtq characters and and actors in film projects and we see a little bit in like video games like uh, Janina Gavankar in Battlefront 2 as Aiden Versio. She identifies as South Asian, I believe. Anyways, any others that you wanted to? Yes. I need to, because we're talking about people who are on the screen, but I love when people who are behind scenes have a, an effect. And by high, behind scenes, I actually mean behind books in this case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the author, Jenny Han, who wrote To All the Boys I Loved Before, which is actually one of three books. You should go read them all. I won't read the second one if it's anything like the second movie. I just love Jordan Fisher and that, and that's all I'm going to say. I just love John Ambrose's character. Yeah, couldn't even remember. That's his race name, bending yeah. because Jordan Fisher's play. John Ambrose is is white in the books, but and at the end of the first movie. Yes, that too. <laughs> Within universe, they changed his race. But why not get some more diversity? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but. So Jenny Han specifically wanted to write, because she had written other YA books before to all the boys I loved before, um, but she wrote this one with Lara Jean Covey, who is, of, uh, who is Korean-American, just like the author Jenny Han is Korean-American, because she never saw herself in these stories growing up, and she really wanted that representation there. But publishers were telling her, let's see, oh, it's just better if I read the quote, it says, Jenny Han said, It felt really great because I had been told by people I had met in publishing that maybe I shouldn't be doing a book about an Asian American family because they didn't think people would want to read about that. But I felt like as long as the book got to the people who wanted it, then I didn't really care if it didn't end up doing well. I also said to my publisher that I really wanted the cover to have a photographic image of Laura Jean so people could walk into a bookstore and see a book with an Asian girl on the cover. And it turned out to be the first book to reach the New York Times bestseller list with an Asian girl on the cover. And to me, that was really affirming because people connected with her and people, all different kinds of people, saw themselves in her. I love that. Yeah. The fact that she pushed for her to be Asian on the cover. And that wasn't the end, though. Han turned down many initial studio offers to make the movie because they wanted Laura Jean to be white. Like, she had to push for it in publishing. She had to push for it for her movie. Uh, just to get this 
representation of an Asian American family to be seen. Like, it should not be that hard (laughs) to get some more diversity out here. But like we were talking about, what makes Laura Jean's story even better is that her being Korean American isn't the focal point to the story. It's a normal teenage love story where the lead happens to be Korean American. Like, it's very secondary um, to the rest of the story. It's part of her, but the real part is that she can be loved for who she is. And that's all inclusive. So I really, really love that. And then I can't leave Casey without mentioning a show that is dear to my heart that we finished the last season of last night, Queer Eye. Mm, true. Not fiction. Not but fiction. That's okay. <laughs> but that's okay. Because I feel like Queer Eye is doing so much for representation and diversity. And it goes back to that normalizing. Yes, absolutely. It's normalizing. And not only the. Uh, not the characters, not even the actors, but the, the Fab Five who are all so diverse and so lovable and none of them are like tokenized even, you know, because there's just such a great diversity among them. And they, so not only them, but also the heroes that they have, that they help each week are all so different, so diverse, so many different, whether it's, you know, races or abilities or... or uh, Gender, gender, sexuality. Sexual preferences. Yeah, like it's everything. everything. And it has been... Some of those episodes have been so eye-opening for me to see how other people live. And again, it's normalizing. You're like, oh, I understand a little bit better um, what they go through and what their lives are like. And I can be a little more empathetic and, and, and kind and so I think that show is just incredibly powerful. So I had to bring it up. I want to know, Valerie, what what's your experience? We, we've talked a little bit about this, but can you think of the first time you read a book or watched a movie where you were like, I feel represented as a as a woman or any other part of your identity? When I was eight years old, I got a book for Christmas called Eight Cousins by Louisa May Alcott, who also writes Little Women. Um, but the main girl in that book and I can't even remember her name now because it's been so long since I've read it but I remember just loving her she was kind of quiet spoken she preferred to sit in a room and read a book and uh, she didn't really do anything like super outgoing or adventurous so it almost felt like well why is she the lead character like she felt very normal and very much like me and yet she does rise to the challenges that come to her and so I remember reading that book and and feeling very seen like that was a character that I could relate to for me I mean we talked about this I've been widely represented as a white male but um, in terms of like personality I do remember it was the Ninja Turtles wasn't it <laughs> yes <laughs> I love the Ninja Turtles but I don't know that I related to them <laughs> um, no I was gonna say uh, Hermione just in terms of personality me being a bookish know-it-all you I are such a Hermione felt, um, yeah in terms of the type of person I am felt represented. Um, but not also in terms of um, like ability and mental health, because I think it's important to mention that on this topic as someone who has anxiety and depression and I even have obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, that's kind of a tricky one in pop culture because it's often, often, often stereotyped as oh, just someone who's very clean or very neat or washes their hands a lot, which isn't mm-hmm. really isn't really what it is always um that can be part of it but it's it's deeper than that and also on film it's really hard to show obsessions because obsessions are such an important part of that ocd it's that o part um it's a little bit easier in in books but i remember um and you and i both read this but the unlikely hero of room 13b yes um the main character has 
OCD in that. And he's a teenager, so I felt a little bit distant in some ways. And um, the thing about OCD is it manifests itself so differently in so many different people. And so it wasn't exactly my experience, but just being able to read his obsessions. And I don't know, I just felt a little more seen reading that book. There, there's one part in there where it talks about how um, the main character mentions what heaven would be like to him. And he just described it as a quiet mind. And I felt like that hit me like in the gut, <laughs> like, oh my goodness, a quiet mind. Um, Cause that, yeah, that's me for sure is having a loud mind. And a lot of that is due to the anxiety and the the related OCD. But um, so yeah, that would probably be my answer for that. It's a really great book. Yeah. It was eye-opening for me to see a little more into the mind of somebody with OCD. Right. Because even you living with me, it's hard for you to see inside my mind, you know? Yeah. Where's that machine? <laughs> <laughs> nobody wants that. <laughs> nobody nobody really wants anybody else in their thoughts. That's so what that's books fine. are for. That's what books are for. So you can step inside somebody else's shoes and experience life like they do oh i forgot to mention it there's an awesome app out there that everyone should look up it's called our story just one word o-u-r-s-t-o-r-y and it's great because you can search for books based on um, various diversity categories and it's so it's just really great if you're um, looking for diversifying your bookshelf which is something that you and i are trying to do yes. and something we are committed to committed to doing better with with our books I want to find something like that for movies. That'd be great too. But as promised here at the tail end of the episode, we wanted to share um, some voices of, of people who also feel that representation is important. Uh, we have a couple written submissions and then we'll jump right into the audio submissions. This one is from Emily. She says, to me, seeing characters I can relate to has the same effect on me as comfort food. It's just so easy and familiar. Although I don't have trouble finding characters I can relate to as a white woman, I did grow up in the Middle East, and I get and I get that same feeling of home comfort when I find a book that takes place in the Middle East or uses Middle Eastern mythology or culture. As a teenager, my favorite book to read was Shadow Spinner by Susan Fletcher. It's a retelling of the 1001 Nights story. I loved that I could understand the Arabic words, envision the markets and clothing, and understand the cultural references. Now that I live in the U.S., it is even more fun when I can find a book or movie that can transport me back to the culture I was so immersed in as a t child and teen. So thanks, Valerie, for recommending the Rebels of the Sand series. I do love the Rebels of the Sand series. <laughs> so good. This next submission comes from Luke. Luke says, as an asexual, I will never forget the first time I saw representation of myself in literature. There is so little representation for aces out there that most of it is well known in the ace community. But when I read Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett to discover amazing ace representation that I wasn't even expecting, I felt like I had discovered something special and unique. Good Omens is about an angel, a Xerophale, and a demon, Crowley, preventing the end of the world. There is a small passage in the book where it is explained that Aziraphale presents as gay, but that all angels are actually non-sexual beings. This seems so true to the lived experiences of asexuals in the world, where people constantly misconstrue us as homosexual because they simply don't know about the concept of asexuality, and to read a passage where it is described as a simple matter of fact was so inspiring. By the end of the book, it was clear that he and Crowley were in a relationship, but not a sexual one, a relationship of pure romance and affection. To see that, it was like seeing a small piece of myself written down on a page, and I think that is powerful. It is so important for everyone to have the opportunity to see themselves in their favorite characters and to see their lived experiences as something that is normal and not out of the ordinary. 
Shalom. My name is Shira and I'm Jewish. I remember the first time I felt represented in pop culture was during a Rugrats episode about Passover. It was educational, funny, and I felt that it really represented my religion well. I absolutely loved it. I think it's important that everyone is represented in pop culture because not everyone has a chance to grow up in a diverse environment where they can freely learn about other cultures. It's also important for people in the minority to feel represented and heard because there are so many instances where the lack of representation or inaccurate representation makes people feel their culture is invalid or less than. I feel fairly lucky in where I grew up because there were other Jewish people there and it wasn't uncommon to come across others like me. However, despite this, very few people can pronounce my name right, and I would get many comments and questions as soon as people found out I was Jewish. I really didn't mind the questions about my religion, since they were mostly thoughtful questions, and I took it as a teaching opportunity. I also got used to people mispronouncing my name, and I told myself that it was fine and understandable, since my name is, isn't in English. But the comments of people saying things like, you don't look Jewish, felt hurtful because that meant that people expected a Jewish person to look different or abnormal. I can't imagine what my experience might have been like if I was the only Jewish person in my area. I shouldn't need to constantly answer questions, pol politely remind people how to pronounce my name multiple times, or have to brush off mean-spirited comments. No one should have to do those things. That's why representation matters. Hi, I'm Erica and the time I felt most represented was when I first saw Star Wars The Force Awakens in theaters. Star Wars has always felt like home to me. I grew up in a Swiss and Mexican household with two older brothers, and when I was little, the best way I could connect with them was through Star Wars. I look very Swiss, but some members of my family favor the Hispanic side. I grew up seeing Hispanic actors in the films, and it was a constant reassurance that my family belonged in the Star Wars universe. Whether it was Bail Organa, Cassian, DJ, Pedro Pascal in The Mandalorian, or even the random cameos from Lin-Manuel Miranda, they all seemed so fitting for the unique cultural atmosphere that the Star Wars universe fosters. Oscar Isaac, though, as Poe Dameron, was really the defining character for me. The first time I saw him, he just looked like a Star Wars character. And my heart soared when I discovered he was Guatemalan, the same way it did when I first heard Diego Luna's Mexican accent in Rogue One. I was simply so proud of my heritage in a way I had never been before. The Force Awakens was so special, however, because not only did I see my family, but I also saw myself represented. I walked into that theater beyond excited that there was going to be a black stormtrooper turned Jedi as the hero. The trailers completely swindled me because even as the film progressed and there was foreshadowing, I did not fathom that Rey was going to be the Jedi. And in the third act, when Kylo Ren calls for Luke's lightsaber out of the snow and it whirls past him and lands in Rey's hand, I was shocked, thrilled. Uh, but oddly relieved because I finally allowed myself to believe that Rey was the Jedi. For years, I was sidelined as Padme or Leia or some other character with a blaster as my brothers took the roles as Jedi. But now I could see myself as Rey, and the bond she forms with Finn and Poe throughout the trilogy is so reminiscent of my own relationship with my brothers. Rey was a character I did not ever know I needed, but I always knew I deserved. 
The fact of the matter is, representation is important not so that you can literally be the character. It is that you have the potential to attain the virtues they embody. You are able to achieve those same ambitions. You can become a hero. There is a place for you in that world, and therefore, there is a place for you in this one. Hi, my name's Taylor. When I saw this question of diversity in media, I was sort of conflicted because we have done better in a lot of different ways, but it's still tough to always find yourself. For me personally, I have bipolar 2 disorder, which means I have a series of moments where I might be impulsive or talk a lot or not sleep for days. And then I go into phases of depression, and then I could be fine for a while. I think when bipolar gets portrayed in media, it's always these wild mood swings, and you're off being quote-unquote crazy is how it always gets depicted. And it's really frustrating because then it leaves on me to inform people that that's not how it works. I'm not out there being happy one second then crying the next that's just not what bipolar is it might happen sometimes but that's not why i am like that i feel like mental health in media just needs to almost take a break and take some time to actually learn about what people are actually going through and not what's going to make the best movie or tv show or book i also took a second to ask my little sister who's uh, black. She's 15, so I was interested in her opinion. And first off, the only book she's read in like five years or so that she actually liked was The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And it was because she saw herself and saw what she's actually going through as a teenage black girl. She said to me, I think we were are going in the direction of being better but she still doesn't see herself as much as she should. We, as an entire community and society, just need to start listening to each other's voices rather than blocking them out and making what we think is entertainment but is actually harmful. Thank you, Casey and Valerie, for this time to share. Hi, it's Sarah from the Discord. So I want to touch on two things. I'm really happy that you guys are doing this. I took a class on race and gender in the media for my sociology uh, major And it's so important, and it's more important than people think it is. They think that, oh, we're just catering to everybody. It's not catering, it's representation, and it's so important. So I always bring up this really minor one because it was so little, but yet made me feel so happy. When Brave came out, Brave was the only princess who had really curly ginger hair. Like, Ariel doesn't really count. She has that um, Ariana Grande and Victoria's red hair. Like, Brave was... Princess Merida was like a full ginger and she has this crazy ginger hair like I did. And I was like, that's so cool. Like that's a Disney princess that looks like me. Where technically a bunch of Disney princesses look like me because the majority of them are white, but there was never this crazy hair ginger princess. And I love that. It made me feel like important. And if something as little as hair color can make me feel important, I can't imagine what skin color or culture does. And there's also the importance of female leads in movies where usually especially superhero movies they're usually kind of a sidekick or the love interest and not really 
the star or the hero, but with movies like Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman, you get these amazing, strong women who literally can defeat anything and they don't really need the help of a man, which has kind of been a theme in a lot of movies, is, oh, there's this awesome female character, but she has to be with a man the whole time. And I feel like Black Widow also would have been that. And it's important because I grew up with the whole damsel in distress, you need to be saved by the guy, you need to change yourself so you could be with the guy in the end. And while those are all great stories, they kind of skewed the way that I looked at life growing up. It was like, oh, I need to be pretty and a damsel in distress. But it's, no, I want to be Wonder Woman. I want to be Captain Marvel. I want to save the universe from destruction. I want to be Moana and save my island without the help of a man. Like, I'm no princess. Like, I'm a warrior kind of deal. So representation is important because, well, we're in a generation where we consume so much media, and if that what you're watching doesn't reflect you, you kind of feel left out, and it's really important. I love your guys' podcast, and I'm really happy you're doing this. Hello, my name is Lena, and to give you some context on how I see my own representation in pop culture, I kind of need to tell you a bit about me and the culture of the place I live in. I'm half Samoan, half NZ European, and have lived in New Zealand my whole entire life. As a Kiwi, we all collectively feel proud when we see our small country get recognition for things in world media. We even get excited when we see New Zealand on a world map in movies, since we are so often left off it. For example, when Taika Waititi finally got recognition for Hunt for the Water People, Thor, and Jojo Rabbit, we were all like, we already knew he was great. We're glad you all caught up. On another note, we'd love to see a non-Kiwi's perspective on Taika's film, Boy, as it's so heavily based around Kiwi humour and culture. I was wondering if it misses the mark to non-Kiwi audiences. We as Kiwis are excited to see ourselves represented in media because it's sharing our little country to the world and opening more opportunities for Kiwis to see themselves more represented than a small island that people think is a part of Australia. One of the first times I felt seen in the worldwide media was when Moana came out in 2016 or 2017 since New Zealand gets like every Disney movie a month later, not that I'm salty about it. I was 16 years old, taking my Samoan grandmother to see a movie about a Polynesian girl who was prompted by her grandmother to go save her island. Let me just say, I cried a lot. The moment that hit me the most, though, was during We Know The Way, where my grandmother started translating to me the words of the song from Samoan to English, and bringing a whole different meaning to the song, where the majority of the world would be lost in translation. This would have been the first time that my grandmother had seen her culture so positively represented on a worldwide scale especially for a Disney movie. Moana embodies a collection of Polynesian cultures, including Māori and Samoan, which I am most familiar with the myths and legends of, having grown up being told both in school and at home. Being able to have a film that has a representation of my culture, where it is so often shown in a negative light or not at all in world media, is a feeling that I hadn't realised I needed to feel until Moana came out, and I hope to see my culture more represented in the future. And to end this, I just want to say thank you all at Hello From Elsewhere and the other WBNE podcast podcast for doing what you're doing. It's kind of hard to find people where I love to talk about films, books and musicals in such an in-depth way while also being a huge fan of it. The podcasts are a way for me to listen to different opinions and perspectives on topics that I love to discuss. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sophia from Washable and Entertainment Podcast. Over here, we talk about representation all the time, especially female representation. So if you're interested in that kind of debate, please head over and check out our show. Representation is so important because media has such a strong power over us and no one even realizes how much it is. Bad representation makes us have stereotypes and changes in our behavior without us thinking about it. You can find countless studies on how Disney princess movies have caused young girls to act in more gender stereotypical behavior. Media 
media also shapes society's view on what is normal. So when a young child grows up without seeing themselves represented on screen, they question their identity and their actions. Growing up, I didn't care for princess movies. My favorites, such as Toy Story, nearly always had a male lead. I would never try to act girly in any way because I didn't want to be perceived as weak. And I know this sounds cheesy saying this on Hello from Elsewhere, but the first time I remember really forming a connection with a female character was when I saw Star Wars The Force Awakens. Rey truly was her own independent woman who didn't need no man. Her main character traits weren't formed around her gender. She was simply Rey, powerful, tough, but she still had female traits like compassion and empathy. And her plot in the movie had nothing to do with her gender. It had nothing to do with love. And that was so refreshing for me to see. My name is Bethy Hernandez, and I am the co-host of Watchable Podcast. I feel represented every time I see a female lead on screen. Because I think it is very important to show young girls everywhere that they can be the superhero. They can be the main lead of a film or a TV show. I think representation for everyone in general is important because it shows people that they belong. It shows people that they have a place in the society, that they have a place to be themselves, to speak their minds, and to make change. So I think while there has been a lot of progress in showing representation of different cultures, different sexual orientations, different beliefs, different races, etc., we still have a long, long way to go in terms of media, such as movies, TV, and books. So in the future, I hope to see more representation of everyone, because to me, it's what makes seeing movies worth it. It's the part of movies and TV shows. It's, it's the reason that I'm a fan. It's the reason that entertainment is so important. Hello there. My name is Kat, and I just wanted to thank Casey and Valerie, first off, for giving me the opportunity to record a few minutes worth of this and just share my thoughts on this. So thank you guys. So the question you guys asked was, can you remember the first time you felt represented in pop culture? And I think the best example of this for me would be Katniss Everdeen. So Katniss Everdeen doesn't really look a lot like me, but we have similar personality traits, similar struggles, similar, I guess, internal conflicts. And I think it's actually really funny because Katniss Everdeen is one of the characters that I hated the most. When I first read through the Hunger Games series, I despised her. I despised everything about her. And I actually really grew to love her because I realized and came to terms with how I related to her and how she sort of represented me in a way. And which is really cool and a very unique experience I had with her character that I didn't have with a lot of other characters. And I think for me, it's most important for a representation for me anyways, not so much that a character looks like me, but that a character has similar personality traits or has to go through similar things. Because I don't care as much what a character looks like as whether or not I can relate to that character. And that's how I feel represented when I see a character, is if... They have to struggle with similar things that I have to struggle with or whether they're also walking through something difficult or 
whether they have similar reactions to things that I do. An ex- another example of this would be Hester Shaw from Hungry City Chronicles or something like that. But the first book is called Mortal Engines. And Hester has no nose and one eye. And I'm not going to spoil the story, but basically, I don't look like Hester. I have two eyes. I have a perfectly fine nose. But I found Hester's personality and her reactions to things to be very relatable. And I felt represented in that way. And so I think it just further strengthens my realization of the fact that a character doesn't have to look like me for me to feel represented, which is obviously a different standpoint from some people because some people feel more represented when a character looks like them rather than when they act like them. And so I just think my point might be a little bit different from some people, but that's when I feel represented. Thank you once again for letting me share my opinions. If anyone is interested in hearing more of my thoughts on, especially Katniss Everdeen, but just hearing my thoughts on stories and things like that in general, I have my own podcast, the Rogue Fangirls Podcast, and you can look it up if you'd like to hear me talk more about Hunger Games and mostly Star Wars, but I did just do a Hunger Games episode, and I talked through a little bit of my complicated relationship with Katniss Everdeen. So, thank you so much! Hi, I'm Beth Rickles, and I just want to respond to this uh, kind of from the perspective as a woman and with someone with a disability. Um, so I think there's something really, really just inherently powerful about seeing yourself reflected in the media. Um, for me, one of those moments was actually Doctor Strange, which I know is a little bit niche, but just seeing him struggle so much with his tremor and, you know, something as simple as holding a pen like it really surprised me the way I reacted to that it, like I'm talking knock the breath right out of my lungs surprised because you know my tremor um it, it is a motor disability and it's always kind of I guess belittled by people you know they make jokes about it because they don't think it's like that serious or whatever um but now I get to joke back at people I'm just gonna go be a wizard if it gets too difficult to handle Um, And kind of as a woman, I have a background in STEM, so I did a physics degree and now I work in IT and the energy industry, both of which are very traditionally heavily male-dominated areas. Um, So naturally, I own a bright pink blazer to channel my inner Elle Woods when I have a big meeting. Um, Because why not? I think there's just something about seeing someone that you can connect to overcome similar hurdles to you. So whether that's a woman in her career in a movie or... A wizard from a comic book who has a tremor. Um, It just kind of gives me a little bit more hope and a bit more drive to tackle the day when it's feeling tough. Thank you so, so much to those who've lended their voices to this episode. It means so much to us, and we love listening to those. Um, So yeah, thank you to Emily, Luke, Shira, Erica, Taylor, Sarah, Lena, Sophia Ritter of the Watchable Media Podcast, Bethy Hernandez of the Watchable Media Podcast, Kat of the Rogue Fangirls Podcast, and author Beth Reekles. Thank you so much for lending your perspectives to this episode. Valerie, do you have any media recommendations? We want to start giving just a very brief media recommendation to our listeners. Creed 1 and 2. Yes. Continuations of the Rocky story. But this is the first time I had seen that. Like, we watched them both in the last few weeks. A couple weeks, yeah. And they were both really great. Fantastic cast and well-made. The first one's directed by Ryan Coogler, um, who did Black Panther. And that's a great one where, and the second the second one's directed by a, a black director as well, but um, the cast is mostly black, but it's another story that it's not necessarily about, about race race and racism. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's yeah, it, it's so good. I mean, it has Michael B. Jordan, who we love. Yeah. And then it's got Tessa Thompson, Valkyrie from Thor who Ragnarok, <laughs> who we also love. 
And they do a fantastic job, and the movie is real great. You should watch it. That was going to be my recommendation, and now I have to think of one. Oh, I started reading The Story of Your Life and Other Stories by Ted Chang. If you love Arrival, the movie, like I do, highly recommend the short story in there, the the one from the title. It's really good. We'd like to thank our new patrons, Shira and Sarah. Yes, so excited to have new patrons and... So kind. It's always happy beeps when we get new patrons. happiest beeps. If you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash hello from elsewhere. We have our new-ish tier, the Swashbucklers. If you want to receive access to our bonus show, bonus beeps. Bonus beeps. We also have fantastic merch on Teespring. The link is in the show description. Yes, because it's long. Yeah, it's not an easy one. (laughs) Yes, but for the month of June, because it is Pride Month, all of our proceeds are going to the Trevor Project, where they help um, teens of the LGBTQ community have... Um, I would call it, Casey, like a safe space. and Yeah, they, they help with crisis support and yes. suicide prevention. Yeah, Exactly. Hello from Elsewhere is a proud member of WBNE. Visit WBNE.org for more fabulous podcasts like Sincerely Us. Dear listener, today's going to be a good day, and here's why. Because today we're headed to Broadway. Are we? Okay, maybe not, but we're talking about Broadway. I'm Becca. And I'm Eenie, and we host Sincerely Us, a podcast for the casual musical theater fan. We discuss everything from strong female characters, to Ben Platt, to individual shows, to Ben Platt, (laughs) to act one finales and everything in between. We even have a few experts on to talk about their expertise in the realm of musical theater. It's an easygoing show for every theater fan. No experience required. Listen every Wednesday at WBNE.org or wherever you get podcasts. It's not a Disney fan cast, I promise. And now, Casey, that we're on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise in, in the in the fabulous in future in Hollywood where things are diverse and just... There's also a library in there that's also diverse. Yes. On the bridge of the Starship. At least this on the Enterprise. This is a weird Starship, but we yeah, love it. You know, it's full of wonderfully weird, lovable human people of all kinds. And that's... So let's jet off. That's the future we want. That's the future. Happy beeps. Happy beeps. <laughs>